Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network, supporting the post-award training and development for gold PIs. I'm Kelly Mack. I am the Vice President for Undergraduate STEM Education and Executive Director of Project Kaleidoscope at the Association of American Colleges and Universities. I've been in this role a little over five years, was formerly a professor of biology at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. The native discipline is physiology, so I taught physiology, I taught endocrinology and biology. My favorite was endocrinology by far. And I'm Diana Cardia, founder of Cardia Group and a scholar practitioner focused on leadership and change in academia and the ways that academia benefits from and contributes to the power of diversity. Together, Kelly and I have been working with the NSF Geosciences Directorate on an innovative program they launched to promote leadership for broadening participation. It's called NSF Gold, Geoscience Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity. In this podcast series, we share what we learned from working with this group and from interviews we conducted with Gold Project leaders. This episode introduces you to NSF Gold and the nine leaders who shared their stories, reflections, and expertise with us to advance our collective understanding of this endeavor. To begin, it helps to have an understanding of what broadening participation means. Here is Kelly on that topic. What is broadening participation? Yeah, so that's a big question because I don't know if everybody agrees. I don't know if we agree that broadening participation is the strategy or the end goal. As a strategy, it would be ensuring that anybody who has an interest in pursuing STEM as a major, as a career, is able to do so. As an end goal, it is seeing that those who are engaged with STEM represent the diversity of our nation. So when I think about broadening participation, I think about creating the structures in which everybody who chooses STEM has the opportunity to fully pursue it. Next, there is the concept of leadership for broadening participation. As it turns out, this is an evolving question that we'll return to many times throughout this podcast. For now, though, here's Kelly and me describing the scope of what we mean by this term. I see at least three levels when we're talking about leadership for broadening participation. There's leaders who are responsible for everything, and how are those leaders contributing to broadening participation? There's leaders who formally take on a task or a project that's focused on broadening participation and who are they and what do they need and how can they be successful. And then there's leadership that is the everyday, I am doing something that's moving the ball forward from wherever I am, from whatever situation I'm in. I might fail at it some days, but those days I take stock and learn from it. So the next day I'm doing it better. Like all three of those definitions of leadership are necessary, but the answers of what they are and how to develop them are fundamentally different. Yeah, in Project Kaleidoscope, we talk about the big L and the little L. 
The big L is, you know, when you've got the formal position, you've got responsibility and oversight for the environment, the tone, et cetera. And then there's the little L, which is every day making it better, every day making a, a small change and, and not an insignificant change. And you're right, they are two entirely different approaches. I think for this kind of work, everybody has to focus on the little L, even the big L. Right. have to focus on the little L. So that describes the focus of NSF Gold at a simple level. But there are a few more things you need to know about this program to fully appreciate the projects and people that define it. NSF Gold is not just the latest in a series of funding opportunities focused on broadening participation efforts in STEM. The NSF Gold Call was an inspired commitment to change the course of broadening participation efforts. Here is Kelly, who was once an NSF program officer herself, talking about the need for a program like Gold. I can relate to the frustration of having made significant investments in diversity and broadening participation programs and seen little return on the investment and seen the same people engaged time after time after time after time. I also hear program officers talk about the formula. You know, when you write a proposal, it starts off talking about how bad things are and we've got the answer and it falls in a couple of different kinds of activities, many of which are workaround activities aimed at fixing the student. And it is frustrating to see. And you can become very impatient at just the glacial pace at which real change happens. My understanding is that this is some of the sentiment that these program officers were experiencing and also seeing that the individuals who were leading these initiatives themselves were not as in tune to, aware of, critically conscious of everything that needed to go into running a broadening participation program. So the Geosciences Directorate shifted the focus from changing students and student access to a focus on changing faculty and institutions. While other NSF programs such as Advance and Includes have also set their sights on institutional change, these program officers also wanted more. They wanted to invest in the development of leaders and the cultivation of a community that could transcend the limits of individual efforts and accelerate the pace of change. With this in mind, they turned to an unusual model, the Ideas Lab. This funding mechanism emerged out of an idea conceived by the UK's Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council in 2003 to inspire more innovative and multi- and interdisciplinary research proposals. Designed and facilitated by No Innovation, an international company dedicated to accelerating scientific innovation, the NSF Ideas Lab model is a five-day residential program aimed at cultivating a shared understanding of a research problem within a multidisciplinary gathering of scholars and generating novel, risky, and cutting-edge proposals. While this model had been used by NSF before, it was unusual to use it in this way. And what was different about it was that it would be focused on broadening participation. And this hadn't been done before. Ideas Labs had typically been used to generate innovation within the discipline itself, not broadening participation within the discipline. For NSF Gold, 
the Ideas Lab brought together 30 scholars and practitioners from 29 institutions of various sizes and types and a wide range of fields, ranging from atmospheric science, oceanography, and ecology and evolutionary biology, to civil engineering, political science, educational psychology, and educational leadership and policy studies. This was in March of 2016. This is also where Kelly and I met. Kelly was the Ideas Lab Director, and I was one of four mentors who served as resources during the five days of problem definition and project development. Five gold projects were funded from this effort. For more information on the five projects, you can go to the gold website hosted at UCAR, cpaess.ucar.edu slash gold. But while the projects themselves are exciting and important and deserve lots of attention, this podcast is about what it takes for those projects to succeed. Here, Kelly and I talk about how the Ideas Lab laid the groundwork. The Ideas Lab was really a wonderful opportunity because it was multiple days in a row, because it was focused on innovation and creativity and breaking the traditional norms of interaction to allow something new to happen. And because it was a room full of really passionate, willing, committed, uh, sometimes in over our heads, sometimes scared, but really everyone in that room brought something and was willing to keep bringing it. I think an activity like that can go wrong if there aren't the right kinds of structures and supports in place to move people through whatever are their personal barriers, let alone the discipline barriers, but the personal barriers have to be managed in a very careful kind of way. And I think fortunately, we recognize that as directors of the Ideas Lab, as people who had had experience with this kind of work before and leading others through this kind of work, to do this kind of We're drawing from everything that we know, absolutely every experience, every theory we've learned, every framework we know, we draw from everything and bring it to bear to walk others through this process or to walk others through their own journey. After the Ideas Lab and the formal funding process to establish the five gold projects, Carolyn Brinkworth and UCAR submitted a new proposal. NSF Golden, to extend the support and development that began at the Ideas Lab. Kelly and I have led the professional development activities of Golden, including monthly virtual learning community meetings, consultations with project teams, and mastery classes on developing leadership and making and evaluating change. The interviews you'll hear in this podcast series are also a product of Golden. Here is Kelly and me talking about the logic model of Golden we added Golden partly as a technological space. That's the piece that UCAR is taking the lead with so that there's a place for these disparate strategies to still be one effort and one community and a place to harness the synergies because that's what this kind of change requires. We can't just silo. We can't just divide and conquer. Yes, each small team needs to pick the things it's going to focus on, but there needs to be that learning from each other's work and backing each other up and gaining perspective together. And you and I saying, okay, first of all, we've got individuals who 
are doing a very hard task. There's not enough understood about leadership for broadening participation. It's far too few places that achieve social science and science collaborations. So let's support them in that work. Then on top of that, they're not just leaders in broadening participation, but they're leaders of leaders, which is an even harder task. And so how can we support them in that? And then the third motivation for Golden is that most academics know how to work as a project leadership team, but few PI teams actually know how to be a team. They'll work together and divide up the work and have meetings, but the kind of team experience that is needed to lead broadening participation, to gain the trust and to make the mistakes together so you can do the work, it's rare in my experience. And so I'm really excited that the Geosciences Directorate was interested in providing more support for these teams to achieve a higher level of functionality, basically, as a research team. And it makes so much sense, you know, when as a funder, you have made an investment and you trust an individual to be able to deliver on that investment and to give them the support that they need to be successful only makes your portfolio that much more successful. You know, I see it as a different kind of model for funding. And I think it's especially necessary for these kinds of projects. If it's about one doing research in his or her own area where somebody is alone and in the laboratory and your only influences are the natural world, acts of God, I think that's a different model than when you are depending on someone to change hearts and minds. And that's a different way of thinking about how success is going to actually be achieved. But what has emerged from that are what I think we would both agree are sound projects with strong leadership, with individuals who can take the heat as the change agent. They're grounded in themselves. They can read the room. They are compassionate for those who don't get it. They are not risk averse. They don't mind using their privilege when they have to. It's rare to find this big a group with that in common who hasn't been doing this work over a long period of time. We wish we could introduce you to all 30 of the Ideas Lab participants, plus the other mentors who worked with us there, as well as the PIs and senior personnel who have joined Gold Project since then. Instead, we have nine gold leaders who happened to be available when we were conducting these interviews, who are inclined to go down the rabbit hole of examining their own capacity for leadership for broadening participation, and who were brave enough to answer a whole host of questions that Kelly and I were only just learning to ask. Here are those nine leaders. I'm Grady Dixon. My current job is I'm the chair of geosciences, small department at a small university in western Kansas. Fort Hayes State University, Department of Geosciences. Prior to this, I worked for nine years at Mississippi State University, also geosciences, but my training is all meteorology and climatology. That's where all of my research has been, all of my graduate students that I've mentored, graduate degrees in geography and meteorology. Prior to this, no formal experience in any sort of DEI efforts. I'm uh, Dr. Darren Paniak. I'm a uh, associate professor, paleontologist at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in Rapid City. 
and I'm the lead PI for the uh, field project, Fieldwork Inspiring Expanded Leadership and Diversity, where we are examining uh, inclusivity and diversity in field geoscience settings. My name is Carolyn Brinkworth. Um, I'm the Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer for the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research. So we manage the National Centre for Atmospheric Research, which is a, a federally funded research and development centre, an FFRDC, mainly funded by the NSF. My background is pretty unusual for this kind of work. My PhD is actually in astrophysics. And so I ended up working for NASA for 10 years, worked for the Spitzer Space Telescope based at Caltech. So I was a postdoc there in astronomy for two years. I moved on to as a staff scientist. And then I got very much into, into education and outreach because I, I realized I didn't want to be a research scientist. That just wasn't my bag. Started out as the education and outreach scientist for Spitzer, then kind of became the education and outreach scientist for all of IPAC and then deputy lead for public affairs, the public affairs team there. But during those eight years or so, I realized that I really needed some, you know, like formal education in how to be a good educator. So I went back to school at Claremont Graduate University and I got my master's in education at Claremont Graduate University. I'm Mary Hubbard. I'm a professor of geology and department head for a Department of Earth Sciences at Montana State University. And I'm a structural geologist. I study how mountains are formed. I've taught at universities across the country, starting in Maine into Kansas and then Utah and, and here in Montana. And they've largely been departments and even universities that lack a lot of diversity. And so I was attracted to the gold project in its bigger scope just because of the, the need to, to address that and, again, to make the environments user-friendly. I've certainly experienced some things personally because of my gender, but there are people that we are trying to include now that could be discriminated against by three or four different counts. And so, so that's just not acceptable and we need to make change. My name's Corey Garza. I'm a professor of marine science at California State University, Monterey Bay. Uh, so I teach across our marine science programs, our biology program. We have a graduate program in marine science. Um, I also run a number of grant-funded education and research programs. Uh, so I run our research experiences for undergraduates program. It's an ocean science training program for undergraduates funded by National Science Foundation. I'm also a, our campus principal investigator for NOAA Cooperative Science Center. It's a pretty fun program to run. And then on my other hat, I'm a research scientist too, <laughs> so I do that as well. I do a lot of work with marine protected areas and marine scientists, and I use a lot of spatial tools. These things like geographic information systems, spatial statistics, trying to understand sort of the basic dynamics of why certain species associate with certain habitats. That's what I call my G-Wiz science. Like, oh, gee, that's pretty cool that they do that. But then how do you take that G-Wiz science and turn it into something more applied? My name is Kathy Cordokas-Fisher, and I'm assistant professor at Florida International University. I have a split appointment between the Department of Earth and Environment that houses our geology, meteorology, and environmental studies and sustainability, and another 50% appointment in the STEM Transformation Institute. And my research expertise is in geoscience education research. So I usually think about how students are learning about meteorology and also about change in higher ed. So the, the other part of my STEM Transformation Institute is thinking about why faculty teach the way they teach and how we might design programs to help them teach better. I'm Jason Chen. I'm now going to be starting the academic year of 18 to 19, an associate professor of educational psychology at the College of William & Mary, which is in Williamsburg, Virginia. 
I teach a lot of classes on sort of the foundations of teaching and the learning process. My research focuses specifically on adolescence and science and uh, mathematics motivation and engagement, particularly how we can leverage technologies to direct students' motivational and cognitive resources toward certain pathways. Hadala is at unth is unth di gudele lagen, hist ak askust udik a lagen, diu hat agen, de klingai klakia agagen, kstachloa, hinodeke ang, when di smith yats a kit, hinodeke ang, hikta hundalai stuth egen. So I said, uh, good people, I'm happy to be here with you today. I am Haida of the Eagle Benayati, and I introduced myself as an indigenous scientist. So I said I'm an observer of the world, not to separate one as being indigenous or a scientist, but both. My Haida name is Kstahlua, which means a laughing lady. My elders named me that because they can hear me laugh, and they said it brings them joy. My people are from Heidelberg, Alaska, and I'm a geoscientist, oceanographer. And I also do a lot of work in my tribal community, coupling our traditional knowledge and language with geoscience and the needs of the community. So I'm Eric Kaufman. I'm at Virginia Tech, uh, Associate Professor and Extension Specialist. So uh, officially, my master's and doctorate are agricultural education and communication. I did in grad school specialize more in uh, leadership studies with that. It was in an agriculture education department, and, and so a little bit more leadership in community volunteer settings. Prior to that, I taught high school agriculture. My bachelor's degree was in agriculture education. You'll hear a lot more from these leaders over the course of this podcast. Their voices and experiences will help us access broader truths that apply across many types and styles of leadership for broadening participation. But it is not just this content or the individual insights that motivate this podcast. Diversity, above all, is about the nature of our interactions. Broadening participation is the practice of enriching, enlivening, and elevating those interactions so that a shared space can exist and within that shared space, we can do more than we could ever do alone. Here, Kelly talks about how that happened for her during the course of these interviews. Will you just reflect for a minute on why you were glad to do the podcast, what you felt like the purpose of those interviews was, what the gains were? I'm laughing because I didn't want to do them. <laughs> and only because I don't like listening to my voice. Of course, I know many people don't, but yeah, that that was not going to be fun for me. Uh-huh. And I didn't think I could be profound enough to, to have enough sound bites in a five or 10 minute segment that, you know, would be enlightening for anybody who would be listening. But it was what you wanted to do. And I trust you. And so I followed you. <laughs> and And then I was just amazed at what I learned and how good it made me feel to have the kinds of conversations that we had, to hear their stories. And I did a lot of growing, right? To, for me to be able to sit and listen to a white man like Darren talk about his struggle, because I look at Darren and I think, there's no way, there's no way you've had it hard. 
but to have had the opportunity to sit with him and listen to his story and hear him talk about it in ways that were so similar to how I would have talked about my own experience was remarkable and a remarkable opportunity for me. There aren't many instances where a white man would sit down with me and say, Kelly, let me tell you how hard my life is. (laughs) And where I would be open to listening to him (laughs) and believing that he really did struggle. Uh So, so I think that that was an incredible gift that you gave to me to be able to, to do that. And it has softened in many ways, softened my outlook and allowed me to lead with compassion first. And that's something that I had naturally done with students, something I naturally do with young people, not necessarily something that I do with grown people. And yet such a theme that we heard throughout the interviews, when we asked people to reflect not on what they were needing to develop, but what they already knew and what they already did again and again, it came back to that compassion. Yep. Yep. I too feel really lucky for doing it. Mm -hmm. I really do. And so we want to welcome you to our podcast on leadership for broadening participation. We're confident that you too will feel lucky for the opportunity to listen to these stories and reflections and consider for yourself the meanings, motivations, and criteria of this kind of leadership. The next episode features what we call origin stories, the source waters from which leadership for broadening participation is born. Feel free to move on to that episode now. You know all you need to know as a background for the episodes to come. Or, if you like, stick with this episode for a bit more and listen to Kelly and me each tell something of our origin stories and the motivations we have for doing this work. So I've been thinking about when did inclusive pedagogy become important to me? And I keep coming back to this one story in in my life, and it was seventh grade. And we had this assignment. We had to read something and write an essay. And I did the assignment. I wrote the essay. And I went to Catholic school, right? So, so after you ate lunch at your desk, then you could go outside for recess. And the teacher, when I was about to go out, she grabbed my arm and pulled me back into the classroom. And I didn't know what I had done. And she said, you have to write this essay. And she's like holding my paper. So I, I wrote it. And she says, no, you didn't write this. Somebody wrote this for you. Who wrote this for you? And I said, I wrote it. She says, you didn't write this because you're using words like this. And do you even know what this word means? So I'm just really confused right now. And the word that I used was enhancement. I was 11 years old. I used the word enhancement in an essay in that letter to believe I hadn't written the essay. And so I couldn't, you know, put it all together at that point, but I can now. I can understand now what it means to have an instructor, teacher, professor, someone, you know, guiding your research, to have biases about what your capacity is and to limit, to really limit what you can learn. And because it limits what they're willing 
to teach you. And so, so then there are instances all along from high school to college and, and beyond where I can point to specific periods, specific instances, circumstances that have taken me all the way back to seventh grade and made me feel like that little 11-year-old girl, like, what did I do? I did write it. And, and it comes in, in so many comes in so many different forms. So then leading up to graduate school, and I think I've told you this story before, you know, it was like seeming impossible to get out. And what I promised God was that if I got out, I was going to make sure a whole lot of other people made it through this process. And part of what I do now, even today, is still tied to that promise that I made when I was 20, 23, 24 years old, just trying to get out of this really, really difficult situation that I was in and not wanting anybody else to have to go through this ever again. You know, oddly enough, it wasn't the coursework. And and probably the same for you in statistics, right? This was stuff that I loved to do and loved to learn about. It was all the other stuff. And and I was in a I was in a program at an HBCU. So the issues weren't about race, it was about gender and it was about age. I came there right out of college, so I was twenty. And the next youngest person in our program was thirty. I didn't have any contemporaries. Everybody was thirty something, forty something. And they had been there for forever, it seems like. And so I was vulnerable in a whole lot of different ways, just as a woman, as a petite woman, and as a 20-year-old woman at that. And so all of that kind of compounded to make it more difficult than it had to be. Had nothing to do with the coursework. Had nothing to do with the research. I had some really great mentors when I was there. I had a really great advisor, um, but it's just like what we talk about today. We can't have a really enlightened department with respect to inclusive activities, and the whole campus is hostile. So the comparison is I had a really supportive lab that I was in, but the rest of the department was so hostile toward women that it, it made the experience quite, quite difficult, quite trying. And so recently we had, um, my, my advisor passed away and we were at the funeral and our old professors were there, right? And it's like, I still remember. I, I just, I still, I remember what you said. I remember what you did. I remember yeah. what you tried to do. Like, I remember. And I, after all that time, I thought I had let it go, but I, I moved on to something else. But I still remember. Yeah, like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you turn the right combination on the lock, suddenly it's right there. Yeah. When you were talking about seventh grade, that's part of what happened. Like suddenly I remembered being in science class. I think it was fifth grade. I had to do a uh, presentation on the planets. And I think ours was on Saturn. There were two of us working together on this project, me and a guy. They videotaped it, and then we played it back. And 
when I was presenting, I was smiling a lot in part because, I mean, I loved, I loved school. I loved science. I loved, I loved being in front of people as well. You know, I was, I later did theater and things like that. So as we're, we're playing the videos, the teacher points out how much I'm smiling and starts mocking me and making fun of me. I literally climbed under my desk in order to deal with the hilarity going on in the classroom because this male teacher chose to use his power to like make me smaller. I hadn't thought about that in a long time until you were describing your seventh grade. And in part because it doesn't matter how much I now know about gender and race and power and sexual orientation and all of the rest of it, at the time, he said it was about my smile. And so I, for decades, whenever I told the story, it was just with this kind of self-consciousness about how I smile a lot and I have a big mouth and big teeth, right? And I smile in an obvious way. Didn't even get it, what was happening. Honestly, Kelly, I don't think I got it fully until I'm telling this story now in this context. You know, it's a funny thing telling these stories because I know that my stories have meaning to me, but I, I hesitate sometimes to tell them because in the telling them, it can seem like, oh, and this is what makes me special, or this is what was unique about me, or it can sound like I don't know how many other people are experiencing those things. And yet it really is true, this story, there's something important in the stories as well. And it gives other people license to know that it's okay to share theirs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we talk about it all the time, how isolated you feel when you go through these things. And part of what feeds into that is that we don't talk about it. Either they're embarrassing or they're just so hurtful. Yeah. Just so hurtful. Like, you know, how do you, how do you put it into words when, you know, you felt something, but you don't know that he didn't say anything. You just... You just felt something, right? The way he looked at you or something so abstract, but you felt it. And when you're, you know, when you're young and these things are happening for the first time, how do you, who do you call? How do you even know who to trust? And what do you say even if you have someone to trust? One of the challenges is that we're constantly working against an alternative narrative. So if I think back to my fifth grade classroom, I bought into the narrative that this was about me and my smile. And so that overwrote any of the other awarenesses or any of the other stories that I could have been aware of. So sometimes that happens. When the male graduate student said to me, I got in because of affirmative action, I knew, first of all, that he had no idea what affirmative action was. He was making up a definition in his mind. I knew what my own GRE scores were. I knew him and what it was like to be in class with him, right? So I wasn't caught in his narrative, but there were so many flaws in his narrative. Where do you even begin? And even if I could slice and dice and dismantle his narrative, he was representing so many people who were thinking the same thing. And you can't get at them all. Yeah. 
And do you have the energy or do you want to use your energy right. on him right, or not? And, and it's, it's a daily choice, moment by moment by moment. And I think even, even in STEM reform, who gets to say what is cutting edge about STEM reform is exclusionary, mm-hmm. very exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And the way in this community we make others feel because you're not working on what I'm working on or you're not involved in the movement that I'm associated with, or you don't subscribe to the um, intervention or the strategy that, that I use or the, the approach that I use, then yours, yours is just less than. There's, it's like there's not enough room for all of us to have a different approach to the same end. It must be my approach. It must be that you do it this way. And it's as if we have borrowed from the culture that we're both talking about and infused it into the reform culture, Hmm. even when we're talking about reform toward inclusion. Who do we need to lead broadening participation? What stories need to be told? How do we create a reform culture that transmutes our experiences with exclusion to truly create diverse, equitable, and inclusive efforts in the geosciences, STEM, and beyond? Join us as we explore these questions and more across this 10-episode podcast on leadership for broadening participation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation, copyright 2018, Cardia Group LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspect of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Kit Kat Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. Thank you.